Welcome to the Veterans for Peace Radio Hour and Podcast on Radio Free Nashville 107.1 and 103.7 and streaming live at RadioFreeNashville.org. Welcome to all of you from the Veterans for Peace Board of Directors. Thank you all who have been doing so much hard work for making this convention a success. That was Susan Schnall, president of Veterans for Peace, welcoming us to the online convention that just finished up this last Sunday. It was Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. We are going to hear more from Susan, and we're going to hear more from the convention. That was truly amazing. But first, my name is Jim Wolgamuth, and I am here with fellow Vietnam veteran Harvey Bennett. We're members of Veterans for Peace. Veterans for Peace is an international organization of military veterans and allies whose collective efforts are to build a culture of peace, humanity, equality, and justice. Just go to veteransforpeace.org. This radio show and podcast are on stations across the country thanks to the pacifica radio network we're also on soundcloud anchor podcast spotify and your phone podcast app just search veterans for peace the veterans for peace radio hour and radio free nashville are supported in part by you the listener because it is you that keeps radio free nashville going and as a result this radio show is then picked up by the pacifica radio network so that we are heard across the country so if you think any of this is important and it is just go to RadioFreeNashville.org and click on the donate button and keep Harvey and I on the air in every time zone in the U.S. And if you think what Veterans for Peace is doing is important and after listening to this show about our recent convention, you can go help us out by going to VeteransForPeace.org and clicking on donate. So Harvey, we just got done with the convention. What did you think? I thought the presentations overall were quite good. Everyone did a good job on there presentations i felt well it was shorter than previous conventions but the presentations i think were more pointed more powerful more relevant and maybe it is the times that we live in but seriously i thought this was an amazing convention and yeah there were sessions where we talked about oh some of the warts that we have as an organization and some of the things we could do better but we're not going to share those we're going to share the the substantive work that Veterans for Peace is linked to and and working hard to accomplish and we did and it, and it's and it's dedicated to the memory of Daniel Ellsberg and I think that had a lot to do with what the uh, theme was exactly and the theme choose peace stand up speak out but it all related to what Daniel Ellsberg believed they jumped right in to climate crisis yeah. and militarism workshop. And those were all very good. Each oh. presenter really had a separate. And yeah. that included Matt Ho, Miriam Pemberton, Janet Wheel, Sharon Abreu, Anaya Butler, who we will hear her poem. She was wonderful. Yeah. yeah. Woody Powell, Ian Mooney, and Gary Butterfield. And yeah. what I'd like to do is just listen to a little bit of that and this is um matt ho in this position right now where i'm sitting is why should vfp be involved in climate change efforts uh why should this be a concern to us uh don't we have enough already to be concerned with and to be fighting against and fighting for um i mean the the, the obvious nature 
of the climate crisis is is just right in front of us. I mean, just just today before I came on, just checking uh, the news, uh, looking at the news on my phone, you know, stories about the fires in Hawaii, stories about fires in Canada, uh, those in Greece, uh, you know, the floods, the rains, the storms, again, California and China, um, the mega drought that the floods and storms and rains in California seem to help, but it didn't help the mega drought that's been consuming the rest of our Southwest for uh, many, many years now. Um, as well, of course, the ongoing drought in East Africa that has just caused enormous, enormous human human env- environmental damage. Uh, you know, it gets more complicated too, though, because there was a story today about how those two lakes that they use down the Panama Canal to ensure there's water so that they can move the ships through the canal. Well, they haven't gotten enough rainwater. So they've had to cut shipping out of the canal by 20%. And it doesn't take too much to figure that if they're saying this is going to last for a year, which it might, that reduction or restriction in shipping, what that's going to do to the world's economy, especially as we just came out of the supply chain crisis uh, that the pandemic caused. And so you can see how things like a lack of rainfall someplace in Central America can have really consequential second and third order effects on societies all throughout the world. And then there's also too just the gut wrenching stuff, right? Another story I saw this morning just just popped up and I go looking for it because it's there. It's happening. It, it, this is so prevalent. The loss of the Empire Penguin. You know, thousands upon thousands of their chicks died this year because the ice melted and the chicks can't can't swim basically and they drown. And the if this continues, the emperor penguin will be extinct by the end of the century, along with how many other thousands upon thousands, perhaps millions of species, whether it be plant, insect, or animal. Uh, I mean, so the necessity of this conversation, and then of course, well, why? Why us? The link, though, that exists. And it's quite clear the link between militarism and war and climate change. Uh, as you're going to hear about this in this webinar, uh, there's lots of information on it. Again, go to the Climate Change Militarism Project website to learn more. But, you know, the U.S. military is the world's largest polluter as an institution. It's the world's biggest emitter of carbon as an institution. It's uh, the large pollute, the, the larger polluter and carbon emitter than most other nations in the world. And this is just one singular institution. It's also ExxonMobil's best customer and what are x what are the x what is exxon mobile and uh the pentagon's armed contractors uh have in common besides that this climate change relationship and this uh, uh relationship with fossil fuels well they're also two of the most profitable assets owned by wall street right so you can see how that nexus exists how that relationship exists um but while we'll get into that and you'll you'll hear about that it, what's also clear is that this relationship between climate change and militarism and war is not just one way it's a circular or self-reinforcing relationship uh climate change drives militarism and war and to briefly talk about this one is you know look for examples issues of how society will be impacted and then how governments will be pressured by society this can be driven by food insecurity this can be driven by migration this can be driven by infrastructure degradation uh there's certainly uh a lot of evidence out there that the war in syria that awful 12-year war in syria which is still going on 
but that killed over half a million people, precipitated the world's largest refugee crisis up until the Ukraine war, uh, was a result of a drought that affected the rural areas of Syria that pushed people into the Syrian cities. And that is not the sole cause, but one of the causes for the instability that occurs that then leads into that civil war. Lots of other causes, too, including, of course, you know, U.S. government machinations. Um, but what you also see, too, is you, have, you see things where resources are going to be fought for. Resources are going to be desired and scrambled for. Uh, water, of course, is one that you would think of right away, you know, the need for water. And you see this. You see this, say, in Africa uh, in terms of uh, the nations along the Nile River and how those upstream have an advantage over those downstream. And you're going to see this all throughout the world. You're, you're also going to see uh, more pressingly things open up that haven't been before. And so many of you may be familiar with this idea that as the Arctic opens, as those sea lanes appear or widen in the Arctic, and it becomes much more accessible, not just for commercial shipping, but also for uh, uh, resource extraction, uh, you're going to see a competition there uh, that we didn't see before. Whereas the competition in the Arctic was limited, now it's going to be full on. But also, too, what you're going to see, and this is a byproduct, of some of our efforts to mitigate climate change is a desire for rare earth minerals. And so as we transition and rightfully transition to electric vehicles, to using solar panel, et cetera, uh, of course, everything we do with these gadgets and these computers requires rare earth minerals. You're gonna see, uh, and we are seeing, an escalation into those areas by the world's powers competing for them. And of course, the U.S. is is foremost in that group. I just want to give you a couple of quotes uh, before we move on. One is from General Laura Richardson, who was the four star is the four star commanding general of United States Southern Command, which has responsibility for Central and South America and the Caribbean. And General Richardson, at the beginning of this year in January, uh, very candidly said the United States must be engaged, and she urged further engagement, which is quite laughable, right? If anyone thinks that the United States over the last couple of years hasn't been fully engaged in the politics and uh, policies of, of, of South and Central America, it's quite, <laughs> quite a brilliant thing to think, right? But this idea, what she, she expounded upon, and again, quite candidly, was you know that there's oil down there, there's fresh water down there, and very importantly, she stressed the rare earth minerals so there was Matt Ho. Other presenters came along talking about climate and militarism. And then near the end, they brought on a high school student. This is Anaya Butler, high school senior from Oakland, California, and also leader of Youth versus the Apocalypse. Um, youth versus Apocalypse is a frontline youth-led Bay Area-based group focused on fighting for climate justice through an intersectional approach and uplifting the voices of youth of color. Um, and so we work with a, a lot of youth and just prioritize that in our work. Um, and we recognize that before approaching a young person about getting involved in the movement in any capacity, we as organizers have to clarify what that movement is about and how it includes the perspectives and experiences of them and their own communities that they identify with. The climate crisis stems from foundational exploitive capitalism and systemic racism, white supremacy, colonialism, patriarchy, and so many other uh, systems of oppression that also fuel 
the same social injustices that frontline people experience daily. Um, and so just recognizing the connection between those struggles and recognizing the fight for liberation as connected because of those connections. Last year, November 11th, was a call to action by International Coalition, YVA joined, um, called Choose Action Now. We wanted to choose a topic um, that was not like the typical climate topic um, and something that we could plug young people in to learn more about. And so we knew that the military was going to be a topic that would be discussed at COP27 and the Nolan Disposable Team, a team that I helped coordinate um, along with a lot of other organizers sort of came together and wanted to highlight the connection between the military and the climate crisis. Um, a lot of folks mentioned like the military focusing on people of color for recruitment. Students talked about seeing recruiting officers in their schools um, a lot. And just also recognizing a lot of our money goes to the military. The military has a very significant carbon footprint um, and a very local example of Bayview and Hunters Point, a black and brown community that has been sort of poisoned with toxic radiation caused by the Navy um, and still yet to be cleaned up. And so we recognize just all these different connections and different impacts and we wanted to highlight that. And so that's why we chose to extend our efforts to um, uplift the, the cause of, or the connection between the military and the climate crisis. But in addition to sort of just extending that and talking about it, we also wanted to work with groups that were consistently um, working on these issues because we recognize that we wouldn't always be working on it. And so it's one thing just to talk about it, but to see the action actually happen after that uh, is something that we also wanted to help influence. And so we reached out to groups Code Pink and they ended up connecting us with Veterans for Peace. And we all sort of worked together. And I, I know personally for me, I learned a lot from Code Pink and Veterans for Peace, just about the work that has been done in the past with the military. Um, and just, yeah, a lot of the work that's been put in with that, that I got to share with my team. Um, and we ended up discussing targets of Lockheed Martin and a recruitment office, which we ended up going with for the action, uh, for the March route in San Francisco on November 10th. And the end, we were able to organize 300 to 400 students. We have school-based clubs, and so we're going to the communities and sort of meeting ch children and students where they're at and sort of providing them the resources to, one, learn more about how this issue is connected to them, and two, sort of equipping them with like resources and experiences and skill sets that equip them to be able to organize themselves and their peers to, uh, to be able to come to actions like this. But overall, in my experience, it was just a good example of intergenerational community and collaboration. Like I said before, I really got to learn a lot and so did my peers that I got to work with. And I'm glad that we got to establish and expand those relationships. I'm now going to be sharing a, a piece with y'all. I'm a poet. This poem is titled, This is the Time. This is the time to take the broken pieces from the crumbling foundations, mold them. I am impatient. The time to recognize these failing systems so deeply despised, mold them until what we need them to be, to a world that is just and free. Our leaders do not see that we are on our knees begging for air so we can just breathe, sit, think. Our world being destroyed, hands of people destroying, we are the destroyers. I'm impatient, molding, building a world people deserve to see, time disappearing like people's hope across the globe, people dying because of our leaders' choices. Is this what we are proud to be? This is the time to change things, damaging. Enough damage has been done. It is our turn to show you how we let things run. 
oceans rising like my anxiety, increasing heat, increasing my thoughts, I cannot think. Is this really a world you want us to live in? You say I'm so inspirational, sit in a seat of power and still create no change. I don't just want to be inspirational. I want you to do what we demand. Crumbling, molding the truth that we need to know, systems that will help us grow, the people's blood flooding through the streets, gunshots and screams on repeat, the systems our country lie on aren't concrete, war between governments that the people are hidden from. What are we trying to become? We mistake weapons as a protection. We are steel and shield, the reason concealed, but today it will be revealed the climate crisis, making the earth's clock tick faster. People with power fulfilled with laughter, but I'm not laughing. We're not laughing. We're not protected. Fossil fuels, cutting down trees, these are the weapons. The probability of our future is less to happen. Every day we sit back and do nothing to solve this climate crisis. We are tired of watching you sit back. You have the power to literally save our lives, but yet you sit there and say our facts are lies. I am impatient. This is the time to make these ugly systems ancient. This is the time taking the broken pieces, putting them back together with the tape of passion. This is the time, time to take action. Thank you all so much. That was Anaya Butler, Harvey, who is a climate climate activist and uh, climate justice activist. That was really kind of marching orders there. I know, powerful and calling people out. And and her organization is Youth versus the Apocalypse. The the next powerful session was run by Robert Bivar, and he is co-executive director of Unified U.S. Deported Veterans Resource Center. Uh, He's also a member of the Veterans for Peace National Deported Veterans Advocacy Project and a member of Chapter 182 in Tijuana and Baja, California, and Mexico. Deported in 2013, he began working with deported veterans in 2014, has been instrumental in their return and continues to do so. He was repatriated. He came back in 2021. 20. Wow. So that's how long he was there. And here's here's some of that discussion. I want to give a big thank you to uh, Veterans for Peace, Veterans for Peace National, and uh, our DVAP committee. If it wasn't for Veterans for the Peace and the DVAP committee, that office across the border in Tijuana that has been such an important factor in the work that has been performed uh, not only in support of repatriating deported veterans, but also in the great humanitarian support that has been given uh, to our migrant community and in particular our refugees and asylum-seeking community in, uh, in Tijuana, Mexico. This is Hector Lopez, one of the people that he's trying to repatriate. I'm tired of improvising and adapting because I want to go home. This is not my country. I want to go home. I am an American and I don't belong here. And at this time, what we need is every one of you across the country to raise your voice of disappointment of the injustice of deporting those that were willing to give their life to defend the United States. And we need to have you, like I said, uh, with a group of your of your fellow Veterans for Peace members, whatever organization members, and reach out to your elected officials demanding 
they meet with you. And in that meeting, demanding that they support the Veteran Service and Recognition Act. And, you know, if, if they don't want to support it because it's a Democratic bill, then invite them to write a bill that will have the same protections and they can put their name on it. And, you know, one of the things that could be very useful when they do that, if they want to write a new bill, it doesn't have to be complicated. All it can be is an amendment to 8 U.S.C. Code 1101 Alpha 22. When a service person takes the oath of enlistment, that proves their loyalty and allegiance to the Constitution of the United States and therefore grant them nationality, if not citizenship, from day one that they begin their basic training and make it retroactive to all veterans that have completed their basic training. In this way, veterans that have been deported can have an easier path to come back home where they belong in the United States. But we need your help. We need every one of you to raise your voice and demand your elected official uh, constituent to take action. And he was asking all of us to contact our congressman and support the Veterans Service and Recognition Act, because there are thousands of people who have served in the military who have been deported and they could be deported on, you know, you get picked up for a broken taillight or whatever. And all of a sudden they find themselves deported after not only serving in the military, but living here for 18, 19, 20 years. Bob is the co-executive director of Unified U.S. Deported Veterans Resource Center. And you can find him at Veterans for Peace, Veterans for Peace National Deported Veterans Advocacy Project, going to veteransforpeace.org. He was describing veterans who were pulled over for traffic stops, and then they do this, you know, computer search, and they deport them for things that happened 10 years before they were enlisted. Yeah, that was the lead no one behind. And then we had the, the welcome ceremony. That had Dan Levin do it, uh, uh, his um, signalman duties to welcome us. And then a, a wonderful prayer by, by Native American Orrin Lyons. And then it was uh, a dedication of Daniel Ellsberg was scheduled, but Susan changed things up a little bit because a special guest showed up. We have a very special guest joining us this evening from Ukraine. Yuri Shaliazenko, thank you so much for coming to the Veterans for Peace Convention. It is an honor for us to have you here as our guests. I would just like to remind people that you are Executive Secretary of the Ukrainian Pacifist Movement, a board member of the European Bureau for Conscientious Objection, member of the Board of Directors of World Beyond War, member of the Council International Peace Bureau, and member of the Council of War Resisters. I would just like to begin quoting words of yours that I think are so important for us all to hear about your ongoing struggle for peace in the world. I will not run from my home and my country. If I'm sent to prison for pacifism, I will find a way to be useful for peace-loving Ukraine, even in prison. I will think, write, and seek ways to contribute to a permanent 
Worldwide Dialogue on Peace. Thank you so much, Yuri, for joining us this evening. We are deeply grateful to have you with us. And he was joining from Thank Ukraine, for, uh, where it was 3 a.m. We'll listen to uh, a little bit of him. To me, uh, to be with you here because your organization is very important uh, participant of worldwide peace dialogue uh, and I hope for big changes. Uh, dear friends, greetings from Kiev, capital of Ukraine. There were six air raid alerts here today and so I spent my evening in the shelter sirens hole any time when a Russian jet MiG-31K is in the air and could launch a Kinjal hypersonic missile, one of those used to destroy Ukrainian energy infrastructure. Kyiv today has good air defense in case of rocket attacks and uh, raids of killer drones, and still there is a level of danger for civilian lives. In other cities, it is Quite obvious, the war should be ended, at least for humanitarian reasons. We need to stop the war and to start reconciliation from simple steps like ceasefire and peace talks. But obstacles to this is determination in Kiev and in Moscow to fight for victory. I have no interest in discussion how the offensives and counter-offensives are successful or not. Let's merely point out that as long as the mass killing continues and diplomacy fails, we lose lives. Of course, merchants of death and their stockholders gain their bloody money, and Lockheed Martin will make fortune on his uh, F-16 Bonanza with taste of nuclear brinksmanship. But when they profit, we the people lose lives. And President Zelensky is not going to stop it. He has so-called Ukrainian formula of peace, which is essentially a pretext to wage defensive war forever. You know, he's been on democracy now a number of times. You've got to admire him. He's right in Ukraine. His last statement there, Zelensky wants to have defensive war forever. And Yuri is just calling for, just end this. Just end it. And he's not leaving. you got to admire this young man. That was Yuri Shelizenko. And then the convention went on to Marjorie Cohn and her remembrance of Daniel Ellsberg. And I'll play... Uh, a good a good bit of that. Dan wrote in his book, The Doomsday Machine, Confessions of a Nuclear War Planner, contrary to popular understanding, the strategy has not been a matter of deterrence of nuclear attack on the United States, but rather the illusionary one of improving first strike capability. To reduce the risks of nuclear war, Dan told me, it is essential that members of NATO press the U.S. and others to renounce the atrocious NATO backing of the first use of nuclear weapons. The current risk of nuclear war over Ukraine is as great as the world has ever seen, Dan wrote. He warned that nuclear war between the U.S. and Russia would result in nuclear winter. That means that more than 100 million tons of smoke and soot 
from firestorms in cities set ablaze by either side, striking either first or second, would be lofted into the stratosphere where it would not rain out and would envelop the globe within days. That pall would block up to 70% of sunlight for years, destroying all harvests worldwide and causing death by starvation for most of the humans and other vertebrates on Earth, he wrote. Dan told me, this is not a species to be trusted with nuclear weapons. It's urgent to get this war ended. We need a ceasefire and negotiations before Putin is confronted with any prospect of losing Crimea and all of Donbass, which would make the danger of nuclear war initiated by Russia more dangerous than any time since the Cuban Missile Crisis. Dan was alarmed at how the Ukraine war could escalate, especially, especially given Zelensky's effort backed by the U.S. to expel Russia from all areas, including those it had held for eight years. Dan was doubtful that negotiations would ever begin if Zelensky continued to insist that every Russian troop leave Ukraine before negotiations can occur. If the U.S. were to enter the war directly with its pilots and combat troops and missions, I believe that Putin would very likely carry out his threat to initiate tactical nuclear war, even with a high probability of escalating, which would threaten all of humanity with nuclear winter, Dan told me. The whistleblowers and truth-tellers who have followed in Dan's footsteps include Chelsea Manning, Catherine Gunn, John Kiriakou, Edward Snowden, Daniel Hale, Reality Winner, and Julian Assange. Dan was one of the co-chairs with Noam Chomsky and Alice Walker of Assange Defense. Every empire requires secrecy to cloak its acts of violence that maintain it as an empire, Dan testified at the January 20th Belmarsh Tribunal opposing Assange's extradition from the UK to the US where he faces 175 years in prison for exposing US war crimes. If you're going to use the Espionage Act against a journalist in blatant violation of the First Amendment, Dan stated, the First Amendment is essentially gone. In 2008, during the Bush administration, when I was president of the National Lawyers Guild, Dan delivered the keynote address to our convention in Detroit. He warned of the dangers of unchecked executive power, saying the U.S. president is not a king. Dan was arrested 90 times, 9-0. He referred to his fellow arrestees as my tribe. During a webinar honoring Dan on Nagasaki Day, Tarak Koff said, we respected him for all that he did, but loved him for who he was. He showed the world how to live with courage and joy, even in the darkest times. He always smiled when getting arrested, which was often. Witnessing him smiling and flashing the peace sign behind his back 
when in handcuffs, was priceless. Dan demonstrated a profound humanity and a life of principled resistance. Tarox said that Dan was a rare human being, truly a spiritual giant who loved and cared for others more than himself. Yet he was always approachable, always one of us. He was a friend and a brother to everyone in Veterans for Peace. And he always signed his emails, love Dan, as if he were family. He showed by example how to live. And as we all know, faced death with the same dignity, joy, and love that he lived with. Dan's wife, Patricia, said that in the four months between his diagnosis and his death, she never saw him happier. He had lived such a noble life. His death was as blessed as his life. Dan told her, I feel so relieved. I don't feel the weight on my shoulders anymore. Dan enjoyed eating lox and bagels and salty food he was forbidden by his cardiologist for eating for so many years. But in the last four months, he ate his fill and enjoyed every bit of it. Dan was a brilliant, intense, compassionate man with a great sense of humor and a remarkably curious mind. I cannot count the times he called me for legal analysis of the U.S. government's illegal action du jour. I am proud to have called him my friend. The theme of this convention is choose peace, stand up, speak out. Dan chose peace. He stood up and he spoke out. We must honor Dan's extraordinary legacy by committing ourselves to peace and the struggle to protect the world from nuclear annihilation. Dan Ellsberg, presente. That was really good. Yeah, she really uh, gave something worthy of him. She encapsulated so much. He really stayed in the present, which I appreciated. It wasn't a historic look so much. Was it his, uh, his, yeah, it was really about him. His commitment to he, he, he just stayed true to his to what he believed in. Exactly. And yeah. for those the for those listening, that's Harvey's wife Kathy contributing as <laughs> we, we we need to get more of Kathy's contributions along. <laughs> yeah, I was uh very fortunate to have met Dan Ellsberg in the run up to the Iraq war when a group from Veterans for Peace went to D.C. and I tagged along with them and we were marching in front of the White House and I looked to my left and <laughs> it was Daniel Ellsberg right next to me. You know, He was such a hero to me because of Vietnam. Then he spoke at the uh, 2015 convention in Berkeley and his topic was the danger of NATO. This was 2015. And I thought, what? NATO? I thought those were the good guys. <laughs> it shows you what I knew. <laughs> well, we've all learned a lot. And we're and unfortunately, we're learning more every day. Yeah. Well, speaking of Vietnam and uh, our, our friend of the show and friend of Veterans for Peace, Doug Rawlings, had led a poetry session later in the evening. Mm-hmm. And he created a poem just for his son. I, I've been blessed to have returned to Vietnam uh, two weeks ago, I was there for 12 days with my son, Josh, and I went as part of a conference um, that the Vietnamese people were putting on called Engaging with Vietnam, uh, 
living heritage, living with a heritage. And I would not have gone back as a visitor. Um, I was there 53 years ago with the 715th Artillery from the Central Highlands. But um, I was asked to come back and read, and read some poems as part of this uh, conference. And we were representing the uh, resistance to the war uh, using Ron Carver's book. So here's a poem I wrote about that experience called Vietnam Redux, Going Back for My Son Josh. I look twice now where I used to look only once, like where routes two and four merge with route 156. Or when my imagination takes me to a little village just on the other side of the river Styx, where there truly was hell to pay those many years ago, across that river and up and down those swirling tides, where Beelzebub got to play with this gift box of G.I. Joe's as we desperately hung on for his satanic little ride. I went back to that land of my 50-year-old dreams, thinking I'd finally put some nightmares out to pasture, hoping to quiet down those mama-san beetle-mouth screams, looking for that proverbial sense of closure. But who am I to expect more from this madly tortured land that once swallowed up my illusions of masculine grandeur and spat out a soldier boy who had tried to become a man, only to become a tool of that mindless, endless slaughter? Doug can be very powerful in 20 words or less. Yeah, right. <laughs> I mean, that's that was amazing. And he wrote that for his son. That was a poetry session at the convention. The next day, the rising danger of war in Asia Pacific, U.S. versus China and North Korea. And the presenters were Ann Wright. I guess she was a facilitator. K.J. No, friend of the show. Yes. Simone, Simone Chun and Peter Kuznick, who's who we had on the show just a couple of weeks ago. His words from our uh, Veterans for Peace No Nukes group. I, I'm just going to include just a couple of, of things here. So here's a little bit of KJ. The key point is that South Korea was created as a, a U.S. christening state through politicide and genocide to prevent socialism from taking root in Northeast Asia. So it has always served a kind of uh, U.S. force projection, threat projection platform. And as I pointed out, the U.S. has operational control over South Korea's military. Now, the U.S. is escalating to war with China. The Korean Peninsula is key. It's using a binding strategy. And when we think of war uh, around against China, Korea and Taiwan have always been matched pairs in war, which is to say North Korea is a stalking horse and it's a pretext for this escalation. Uh, South Korea is the major force and threat multiplier against China, which the U.S. plans to leverage in its war against China. This really has to do with not only um, the geostrategic dimension, but simply the ge geography uh, of the area. And the U.S. is currently creating a set of quote-unquote allies. They've created, uh, just after this Camp David meeting, the Japan-Korea alliance, JACUS, <clears throat> which is essentially a mini-me NATO that is built to wage war against uh, China. It has an Article 4 type provision, one for all, all for one. And if war happens on the Korean Peninsula or in Taiwan or in the South China Sea, you can be sure that they will be the first to fight. 
and the Korean people will be the last to know. We already have AUKUS, which is a nuclear-powered uh, configuration where Australia is holding up the southern end uh, of this alliance. NATO is has plans to expand into Asia. And of course, the Philippines has renewed its military agreements and bases, expanded to eight bases in the South China Sea. Here's a little bit of Simone. There are a lot of people who say, you know, we want to, we want to plead Biden, please, you know, this, you know, disarm and, and peace treaty and peace agreement. We have been begging, we have been pleading for so many years. But the question right now is, there seems to be, the United States seems to be have absolutely no interest whatsoever in peace in the Korean Peninsula. So the question is, can there be peace when the United States is at a virtual war and is already a kinetic, you know, triggering kinetic war? And as KJ pointed out, South Korean military is controlled, not only controlled by the U.S., but also now is, um, is getting worse. It will subordinate it into a trilateral U.S., Japan, South Korean military alliance against China. Hence the, so once we identify this problem, this, this correct cause, root cause, now our action is clearer. That is, the root cause is the threat to peace and stability in Northeast Asia is Washington's imperialistic quest and its military encirclement of China, which forces Korea into pretty much front lines of Washington's aggressive military push in, in East Asia. So therefore, this is Korea, the, what Koreans facing, as, as I pointed out, starting from four-star general to those people who are protesting candlelight protests right now, even at this moment, their concern is our concern. Their concern is America's concern. Their concern is America's young peoples who are going to be also pushed into war. So U.S. peace movement, what should we do? We must oppose. We must stop U.S. imperial policy. And we should make this as our focal point of our struggle. And how can we do that? We can join its voice with the South Korean public. Because they are campaigning, they have been campaigning for seven decades, and they're campaigning more vigorously than ever to regain their sovereignty and independence. And here's a little bit of Peter. I anticipated exactly what has happened. I knew that between Anne and KJ and Simone, that they would cover everything that needs to be said. And so I tried to figure out what else I might be able to add that would be useful. So I started looking at all of the plans for war in between the U.S. and China over Taiwan in the South China Sea. And it reminded me of a comment that was made by the great social critic Lewis Mumford back in 1946, when the United States did its first nuclear test in the Pacific. And Mumford wrote a piece in Saturday Review titled Gentlemen, you are mad. And he says, we in America are living among madmen. Madmen govern our affairs in the name of order and security. The chief madmen claim the titles of general, admiral, senator, scientist, administrator, secretary of state, even president. And the fatal symptom of their madness is this. They've been carrying through a series of acts which will lead eventually to the destruction of mankind under the solemn conviction that they are normal, responsible people living sane lives and working for reasonable ends. 
soberly day after day the madmen continue to go through the undeviating motions of madness motions so stereotyped so commonplace that they seem the normal motions of normal men not the mass compulsions of people bent on total death without a public mandate of any kind the madmen have taken it upon themselves to lead us by gradual stages to that final act of madness which will corrupt the face of the earth and blot out the nations of men, possibly put an end to all life on the planet itself. Well, Mumford said that back in 1946, but how relevant is it to today? I mean, we can say the exact same thing. And so I saw that uh, when I came on, that one of the people this convention is honoring is Dan Ellsberg. And Dan was one of my closest friends in the world, maybe my most intimate friend. And Dan, more than anybody, warned about not only the threat of nuclear war, but the threat of nuclear annihilation. And Dan pointed out that we haven't only used nuclear weapons twice, and we use nuclear weapons repeatedly in the same sense that somebody holding a gun to somebody else's head to rob him or her is, is, is using a nuclear using that gun uh, without pulling the trigger. And that's what diplomacy has been ever since World War II, the threat of nuclear war. All right. And then following that, we had the keynote address. Claire Daly, Jeffrey Sachs were on. And I want to, I want to get some of that because she has her own ways, which are, you know, in a very nice way, just calling people out. And so here's a little bit of Claire Daly. Our keynote speaker tonight, Claire Daly, is an Irish politician who has been a member of the European Parliament from Ireland for the Dublin constituency since July 2019. Special thanks to Claire for her incredible and wonderful support of two of our Veterans for Peace members who spent several months in Ireland for protesting the United States transport of troops and weapons through Shannon Airport. Claire Daly, thank you so much for joining us tonight. It's a, an absolute honor for me to be here with you all. I have to be honest, it's August. I don't normally break my holidays for anybody, but when I got the invitation from Veterans for Peace, I knew I had to make an exception. Um, firstly, because in general, I have a total admiration for the work that you do. But secondly, because of precisely the work of Ken and Tarek, that we know that we owe you Ireland having interned them both almost for almost a year for having the audacity to try and search U.S. warplanes coming through our civilian airport in Shannon. So Veterans for Peace really have a special place in the traditions of Irish peace and neutrality. So it's my honour to be with you. Although if I had read the fine print and realised that it would be in the middle of the night for me here in Brussels, maybe I wouldn't have been and maybe I won't be at my best. But if I'm not in my heart, it's the only place I'd want to be tonight because I think your conference is taking place at an incredibly 
appropriate time. Exactly 18 months from the start of the war in Ukraine, or Russia's unprovoked war of aggression, as it's called repeatedly on our airwaves, repeated time and again, which kind of gives you a clue that the war actually was provoked. That doesn't mean that it was justified. Russia had no right to invade the sovereign territory of Ukraine. This was 100% illegal, but it was provoked. And unless we understand that, then there can be no solution to the conflict that takes place, that is taking place there currently. Because the backdrop to the war of Ukraine, in Ukraine is the continued expansion of NATO since the end of the Soviet Union and in breach of the promises made at that time. 14 countries joined. Every time another country joined NATO, every Russian president said, this is an existential threat to our security. Yet it was ignored. Even US officials pointed out that the idea of Ukraine joining NATO would be a red line for Russia along the lines of the Bay of Pigs for the US or if, for example, Russia sighted missiles on the borders in Canada. Yet, in 2008, George Bush said that Ukraine and Georgia would join NATO. In 2014, the US was responsible and involved in the coup inside Ukraine. And there's no doubt about it that the current war that is raging, even as we speak here now, is a result of the conflict policy of NATO to encircle and gold Russia. Unfortunately, Putin responded to that provocation and gave them everything that they wanted. NATO has been rescued from obscurity. Europe is now firmly a vassal state of the US, not a potential uh, rival, not a potential ally of others. There had been a belief that when the UK left the EU, that this would be an impetus for an EU army, UK having been the biggest supporters of NATO inside the EU, but instead what we see is NATO really now is the only show in town in Europe. Countries like Sweden and Finland, which to be honest were nominally neutral, but now have firmly joined the NATO camp. And even in Ireland, my own country, where the people are proud of their neutrality, we see the Irish government under pressure of the war in Ukraine now wanting to have what they call a conversation about our neutrality. So we'll leave Claire right there, but she went on and she, you know, what you could tell, she was laying the U.S., European Union, and NATO. She was laying them out. And she does it in a very, very nice way. But still, she was laying them out. Yeah, I wouldn't want to be on her bad side. Oh, hell no. Good Lord. (laughs) (laughs) And you can find Claire Daly all over the... um, all over all over youtube so she's well worth she's she's very to the point she's very clear she's got such a grasp of the whole european mindset yes and history she's well worth listening to whenever you get a chance the second keynote speaker was jeffrey Sachs. our next guest is professor jeffrey Sachs. 
Jeffrey Sachs is University Professor and Director of the Center of Sustainable Development of Columbia University, where he directed the Earth Institute from 2002 until 2016. He is president of the UN Sustainable Development Solutions Network. He has been special advisor to three United Nations Secretaries General and currently serves as an SDG advocate under Secretary General Antonio Guterres. He spent over 20 years as a professor at Harvard University, where he received his BA, MA, and PhD degrees. It is an honor and wonderful to welcome you, Professor Sachs. Thank you. For peace. Thank you so much. Well, I'm uh, very honored to be with all of you and really delighted to follow uh, Claire Daly's wonderful remarks. It's so good to hear some wisdom coming from Europe because unfortunately the dominant discourse in Europe is like the dominant discourse in the United States uh, these days, which is uh, war all the time. And um, I've always counted on Europe to be smarter than the U.S. on these matters because the U.S. makes so many of these uh, awful, uh, unnecessary wars. Um, and I've been surprised and very, uh, very alarmed and disappointed by uh, the European leaders falling into line with the uh, U.S. military industrial complex. And um, Claire, thank you. <laughs> It's just so, <clears throat> so good to hear your, uh, your wonderful remarks. It's gotten very bad uh, in Europe, as it has in the United States, very hard to reach the mainstream because the media, the corporate media, have completely, completely blocked out any honest accounting of uh, how we got into the Ukraine war and what's happening and why it's a disaster. So it's very hard to even uh, share basic facts right now. I, I know I was pretty frequently on uh, just normal mainstream TV, but not these days, not in the last couple of years, because uh, nobody wants to hear. And I, I begged the New York Times even for one editorial to tell the truth about this war, and I kind of badgered them into accepting something, and they accepted it, they edited it, they were getting ready to print it, and then they said, oh, I'm so sorry, Professor Sachs, we're not going to run it after all. Uh, so the, the fact of the matter is uh, the, the corporate mainstream media is just completely saturated with the U.S. government propaganda. So, Harvey, that was part of uh, keynote from Jeffrey Sachs. And he went on and talked a lot of history. And, you know, we've had his words on the show. Yeah, he covered a lot of the same ground that we've, we've heard him cover in the past. but Which is always good. And, you know, yeah. whenever there's a different audience, you and I were somewhat surprised later on when this happened. Hello, my name is Rhonda Shelton, and I'm the president of the Hector Black Chapter of Veterans for Peace here in Nashville. And it is my pleasure to present the 2023 Service and Stewardship Award to Harvey Bennett and Jim Walgermuth. Who? For their work with Veterans for Peace Radio. Veterans for Peace Radio is a radio broadcast 
that highlights topics that are pertinent to the American public and to veterans. Such topics include the privatization of the VA, racism in the military, the true costs of war, and the military-industrial complex. It's been a pleasure knowing Jim and Harvey for five years. They have been very active in various campaigns and protests here in Nashville, and they inspire me to keep up the fight for peace and for veterans' rights. So I'd just like to say congratulations to Jim and Harvey for this award. Congratulations, gentlemen. Yeah, that's that was um, quite a surprise, wasn't it? Yeah, she she managed to uh, keep that under wraps. I know. Who who knew? <laughs> so really appreciate what Rhonda did there. We've enjoyed doing this show for eight years, but getting a little recognition never hurt. It was the end of day two, and uh, there was um, definitely more to come on, on Sunday. We might have to do a second show. Well, we've done that before. Yeah, we have at least finish up some of the stuff. So yeah. they did finish up the evening with some music. And here's Paul Cox to introduce. Cat Stevens' song uh, played by a whole bunch of really talented musicians called Peace Train. Now I've been happily thinking about good things to come. And I believe it could be something good has begun. Oh, I've been smiling lately, dreaming about the world as one. And I believe it could be someday it's gonna come. Cause I'm on the edge of darkness, there rise the peace train. Oh, peace train, take this country, come take me home. Jump 
Change.